Great. If you'd open your Bibles, please, uh, to Luke chapter 24. This is the only chapter in Luke that describes the resurrection. And if you're using one of the Bibles that is provided for you in the seats, in the seat under you, in the seat in front of you, it's page 735. Luke 24 is the only chapter in Luke that discusses the resurrection. I've, I, I think I've noticed this before, but this year it, it really seemed to surface that Luke 24 is the only chapter, there's only one chapter in Luke that even talks about the resurrection. If you go to Matthew, 28 chapters in Matthew, the resurrection occurs in Matthew 28. If you go to Mark, you get the last chapter. John gives us a little bit more. But what you find when you study the Word and study the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you find that the resurrection, while it shows up in all four of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels are very emphatic to show that it happened, that it doesn't really spend a lot of time on the resurrection. It actually feels quite abrupt uh, when you're reading, especially if you're into the story. When you get to the resurrection, you're like, now it's the good part. And the next phrase is the end. It, the book just stops. You're, I'm ready for the ministry of the resurrected Christ. That's my spirit seems ready for the ministry of the resurrected Christ. I want to see like now, you know, he hasn't used lightning bolts yet, but now as a resurrected Christ, he's going to be fully glorified. I mean, that is the conditioning of my spirit is I'm ready to receive a grand story of Christ, this victorious Christ, but we don't get that. We get a chapter, and then it ends. Let me express it to you this way. Um, if in my Bible, so the numbering, the page numbers in your Bible is different, but in my Bible, the Old Testament is 932 pages long, and each page has approximately two columns of Scripture on it. So there's 1,864 columns of the Hebrew Scriptures. That's the Old Testament in my Bible. My New Testament, I have 271 pages or 542 columns of Scripture. That's roughly 30% as large as the Old Testament or roughly one quarter of the entire Bible. So you'd think of it as the Lord lays the groundwork in the Hebrew Scriptures. He lays the groundwork down and then the New Testament, about a quarter of the Bible is used to reflect back on the significance of the Scriptures that were given to Moses and the prophets. The scriptural narrative of the resurrection is ten, not ten pages, ten columns of scripture. That means it's 4% of our Gospels, it's 2% of the New Testament, and it's less than one half of 1% of the Bible. And yet, this is the big day. This is the high day of the church. The resurrection takes the throne of Sundays. This, this abrupt moment is the big day of the whole church. This is the day when, when, that we look forward to, that we, we lean forward to. It, it, is, it has the right to kind of smile of all the Sundays. Now, we speak above the cross and the resurrections throughout the Sundays 
of our worship year. It always should be part of the life. But on this Sunday, we isolate the resurrection and we lift up the resurrection and we point to it and we worship God and we, we take time to celebrate the resurrection even though it is a dot. Now, it's, it's clear it happened. It's clear in the scriptures that the apostles want us to know about the resurrection. But as far as the, the amount it takes, it's just it's 10 columns of scripture. Here's another way of thinking about it. If you drive around and look at churches and you see steeples, on the top of the steeple you see a, a cross, not an empty tomb. I never saw an empty tomb on top of a steeple. If you look behind uh, the pulpit in most churches, even if their church is a gymnasium, you see a cross. Right? Not an empty tomb. If you look on the signs of churches, their billboards, their pamphlets, their bulletins, their brochures, their advertisements, you see a cross most often. If you walk by their children's Sunday school class and you look in the window and they're doing arts and crafts, they're making little crosses with macaroni. They're making crosses, not empty tombs. Where's the empty tombs? This is the high holy day of the church. But ten columns in Scripture... No steeples. This can be the challenge uh, that we arrive at Easter is we know that something great and magnificent is being expressed, but how to fit it into the broad narrative can be challenging. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to look in Luke and see how the Lord frames his resurrection in light of the bigger story, in light of all the Hebrew scriptures even. And so if you would look at, at the 24th chapter. This road to Emmaus. Now we're not going to read it. It was read by the worship team during our time of music. But I will walk with you through it a little bit just to notice a few things. So in verses 13, roughly through 15, you get the picture of two travelers. Two uh, gentlemen who are leaving Jerusalem. This is the day of the resurrection. So on the day of the resurrection, today on Sunday, they're leaving Jerusalem and they're going to a, a town called Emmaus about seven miles away. And they're walking and they're confused. They're discussing the circumstances that have been happening. They're, I would call them followers of Christ. They're close to the story and so therefore they're confused. And it's in that setting that Jesus shows up. They have an encounter with the Christ, except that it says in the 16th verse that they were kept from recognizing him. That's what it says. They were prevented from seeing him. So it's not their fault, right? It appears to be a spiritual work of the Lord that they cannot recognize Jesus. And so... Jesus says, you know, what's going on? And they say, and this is, this is irony, right? They look at Jesus and they say, you don't know what's happening, right? Jesus is like, Jesus who? You haven't heard of Jesus? You don't know Jesus? What kind of guy are you not to recognize Jesus? And they go on. I mean, that, we shouldn't miss the irony, and it, it, it's an Easter joke. So I'll try again next year. But... <laughs> Uh, It's there, right? And they're confused. And Jesus says and begins to ask them about himself. 
Tell me about Jesus as they're walking along the way, and they begin to describe Jesus. They say they call him a prophet. They call him mighty and powerful in word and deed in the eyes of God and men. Now, that's a, that's, that's a pretty full sentence. His words are powerful. His deeds were powerful. And God apparently recognized his words and deeds as powerful, as did the, 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 the town. The people recognized his words and deeds as powerful. And so they're confused because the next sentence is, but he was handed over by the priests and was crucified. And you can see how that would be confusing to someone to see a, a mighty prophet who is powerful in word and deed, and that power is recognized by God and by man, and yet he was turned over and killed. And so they're confused. And furthermore, to heighten their confusion, they, had, they confessed that their hearts had begun begun to hope that he was the one who would redeem Israel. That's what they say. They say in 21, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He was a prophet or a mighty man of God whose word and power was so great and so so remarkable and whose recognition from the Lord and from the people was so singular that they had to be begun to trust that this is the one of which the scriptures speak, the Messiah, the one who would come and redeem, the one who would sit and establish an everlasting throne over Israel, whose, whose throne would never fade away, who would never step down off his throne. They thought, this is the one, and it becomes all the more confusing, the fact that he was killed by the priests of all people. And then to add again to their confusion, now they're hearing these, these reports coming back from the women and from some of the other followers of Christ. The tomb is empty, that angels have appeared, things are happening, and they don't know, they don't understand what's happening, and they're telling Jesus all this as they're walking on their way to Emmaus, and he replies with this phrase. Verse 25, he says, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all the prophets. How foolish you are. No, I think it's an endearing foolishness. I don't think he's slamming them. But it is, it is worth noting, they were kept from seeing Jesus. Right? So they're not being held responsible for not recognizing Jesus with their eyes. But Christ is, seems to be holding them responsible for not understanding for not seeing him in a different way there's a sense where the lord it seemed right to christ to disguise his physical appearance i mean the scars on his hands and his feet i mean something happened where they don't recognize those things it seemed like it was in the will of the son not to disclose his personhood to these followers of christ but then when it turns around in the conversation, it seems that it's in the, in the mind of Christ that he holds them responsible for recognizing, for understanding and recognizing him at a deeper level. They're culpable for not getting it. They're not culpable for not seeing him, but they're culpable for not getting it. That's what it seems to be. 
Now, it's here. This is why it's good that I'm not Jesus. Because it's here that if I were Jesus at this point, I would kind of jump in front and go, it's me. It is I. I would use it is I, because I've never had a chance to use an it is I. It is I, the redeemed and the resurrected, right? And I'd show my hands. That's what I would, that's what I would think I would do at this point, right? Because if I was walking with them and I could tell that their hearts were yearning, that they had begun to trust that it was the Messiah, that they had, they had these expectations and that they'd clearly seen and what was powerful and good as powerful and good, they are followers of this person, Jesus Christ. I would have wanted to immediately expose and reveal myself. That's what I would have done. But does Jesus reveal himself? Well, no, but Yes. He reveals himself in Scripture. This is what he does. It says, and in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them that all that was said in all the Scriptures concerning himself. So this is interesting. If you get 10 columns of Scripture to talk about the resurrection, Luke is showing us that Jesus uses one of these 10 columns to talk about the other 1,864 columns. Like, here's this moment to make big of his resurrection. Here's this opportunity to make a big deal of his resurrection, and what does he do? He turns their minds right back to the Scriptures, right back to the Moses. When they say Moses, they mean the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And when they say the prophets, they're talking about all the prophets. And so there's this moment where in order for Jesus to reveal himself, instead of showing himself, his hands and his feet and his side, instead of kind of lifting the veil that he's placed over their eyes, he in fact turns their hearts back into the word and then begins to kind of mine the scriptures so that they can begin to understand who Jesus really is and what their expectations should have been to the point where when at last they come to the realization, they said, did did not burn in our hearts? Didn't we know when he opened the word to us? Didn't we know in our hearts it was him? These 1,864 columns of scripture in front of the gospels is what the Lord used. In other words, he does not explain his resurrection to his people simply by showing his scars. The odd odd thing is, many of us grow up with the opposite experience. Many of us grow up cognitively knowing that Jesus Christ has been resurrected. So we're not, in that sense, we're not like these travelers on the way to Emmaus. We're like the opposite of the travelers. We're not confused. There's no veil over our eyes. We know, you know, what, what, whether or not you have internalized it as an expression of your faith is different. But we know the report that the tomb is empty because the man named Jesus is alive and that he's walking the earth. We know that. We are, we're the opposite in the sense that, that we don't have the veil pulled over our eyes in the sense of knowing what Jesus did, but, but at the same time, very often, many of us, especially if, if your religious expression is a little less frequent, like if today is your religious expression, 
then the, the data point, the data point you have is the high holy day. It's the resurrection. In other words, all you know about the resurrection is the resurrection. And then it becomes difficult to understand how, well, how, how do we celebrate it? How, how does it connect? How, how does it, this is an example. If you've ever seen, uh, I'm just going to, I'm not thinking of a real example, but a generic example. Um, two moms visiting, like in Panera. Right? They're visiting, and they have a baby in the car seat, and the baby's getting frustrated, right? And the moms want to keep talking, and so one of the moms, without even looking down, begins to reach in her purse and throw things on the child. <laughs> like, you know, the brush, she throws her brush, and the kid plays the brush and tosses it, and the fingernail file... You know, and it, it, they're all coming out. I've seen this happen many a time. If I had a purse, I would have used it. You know, I'm just like arming the child just to buy time. This mom, you know, and she's visiting about who's seeing who and how's it going and all that. And she's giving the child these things. And eventually she pulls out the big guns. She pulls out the shiny car keys. Right? And she drops them in that car seat. And the child has these car keys. Oh. Like it is. It's the high day. I think, I think we can be like that. I think we have possession of the resurrection, but we don't know how it fits. And I, in fact, I think for some of us, it is an underestimation to say we are like infants with this truth in our hands, not knowing what to do with it. Because we don't have, we're not mature enough in, in the word and in the faith to understand exactly how does it, how does we take this resurrection, this knowledge that on this day, on this day of all days we're supposed to come and celebrate the risen Savior, how do we take that idea and make it functionally true? We have this knowledge, but we have an inability of bringing it into our life functionally. I'm just saying, as the church, on Easter, when we rally around the empty tomb, we should be cautious not to make the empty tomb so empty of lasting meaning. Let me show you another example. Let's just keep reading. I'm going to read Luke chapter 24, verses 36 to 49. And I'm, I want us to ask, what does the resurrection do for us? What is the role of the resurrection? Here's what it says in verse 36. While they were still talking... Okay, let me stop real quick. What's happened already, it's the same day as resurrection. Okay, so uh, the women went and saw the empty tomb and were encountered by angels. Peter and John ran to the tomb and have come back and made report. Now the two men on the way to Emmaus... When they discovered what happened, they beat feet back to Jerusalem, and they've gotten back, and they've given report, okay? So there's been several reports coming in to this, this upper room. If you want to, this is an upper room on the other side of the resurrection. And now they're talking. It says, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were startled and frightened to thinking they saw a ghost he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones 
as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, now listen, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Now, this, this story here happens a little different than it does in the road to Emmaus, right? Because Jesus shows himself immediately to them and then follows up with the scriptures. In Emmaus, he shows the scriptures, and then through the scriptures, he reveals himself. But here, he reveals himself immediately and then begins to then turn their minds back to the word and say, you should have seen it. This should not be too amazing for your words, too amazing for your heart. You should be able to receive this truth now because of what the word has said. And he begins to open the word up. And there's an, I think for, at one level, it's important in this narrative, I think for Luke, for the readers to see that Jesus is neither a ghost nor was he simply a wounded man. And so some people who were, wanted to be dismissive of the resurrection said, well, he was resurrected as a ghost. To which the church demonstrably says, no, he was resurrected as a man, as will we also. Not our spirits, but we will be raised. So that seems to be an immediate issue that Luke wants you to see is he's not a ghost. You're saying, look what happened here. He demonstrates that he's not a ghost. There was another critique that was kind of rising out and still continues in kind of dark alleyways of disbelief to this day, which is Jesus never really died on the cross. He swooned. They took him down. He kind of went into a sleeping coma. They put him in the tomb. He woke up. How he moved the stone is a little bit Still of a challenge to that theory. But that what happened here is that he kind of wounded, showed back up among the believers, to which this narrative here kind of refutes that. Because the room, he appears in the room. He teleport. For all you Doctor Who fans, teleports. I don't know, there isn't a better word. He shows up in a, in John, you know, it's a locked room. He shows up. And so John, or Luke kind of shows us these two ideas. He's not a ghost, and he's, he wasn't like he was just wounded. He's God, and he's raised. And we're, we're given this, this image. And then he begins to describe or explain his resurrection. And how does he explain his resurrection? with the 1,864 columns of Scripture in front of him. He doesn't do a new thing. There's not a single new teaching in the Word, not a single new teaching 
that comes to us from after the point of Christ's resurrection. Christ is resurrected, and then he looks back. It says here, he explained to them the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And then in verse 45, by the way, by the way, he was on earth for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And I believe that verses 45 through 49 are a summary of that period of time. I think that Luke is summarizing the remaining days here. So that verse 45 is actually kind of an elongated idea that then he opened their minds, I would say, over 40 days, over a period of time, so they could understand the scriptures. In Acts 1, Acts is the sequel to Luke, written by Luke, and it picks up right, they overlap right in this moment. In Acts 1, it begins with, He gives many convincing proofs that he he was alive. And then it says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And so it's, it's happening. Whether you see it here in Luke or whether we rely on the testimony of Acts to know what's actually happening is he begins to, he shows himself as resurrected and then he begins to defend his resurrection or explain his resurrection or place his resurrection into understanding by use of the scriptures. All the scriptures, Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he does that, apparently, for 40 days. He explains the kingdom in that regard. I guess what I'm saying is, is we, cannot, we cannot appreciate the resurrection apart from the story of God. The resurrection is not its own story. It isn't really ten columns. It's the last ten columns of 2,000 columns. This is, this is the purpose of the resurrection, if you're trying to understand it. The work of God is in Genesis all the way through the crucifixion. That is, that's where God is doing things and setting the stage. The resurrection is a validation of the work of God. That's what's happening. And when you read the scriptures and you're wondering, well, well, why do churches have crosses on there? Well, we have crosses on our steeples and our buildings because the work of Jesus Christ for us unto salvation occurred on the cross. We are Christians of the cross in the sense that our sins were paid for on the cross. The righteous one, Jesus, stood in our place on the cross. He substituted himself for us on the cross. He who was without sin became sin for us that we might know and have the joy and salvation of Christ on the cross. He did all of that for us on the cross. The cross is where it's taking place. The cross is where the work is happening. The cross is where the wrath and judgment of God for our sins is falling on his shoulders. All of that is happening on the cross. That's why we affiliate ourselves with the cross day in and day out is because our salvation is not anchored to the resurrection. It's anchored to the cross. You know what the resurrection does? The resurrection says, and the cross was effective. That's what the resurrection does. The resurrection validates the cross and all of the work of Jesus Christ, all of the promises of God given to us. The the purpose of the resurrection is to impute to us the knowledge that everything that Jesus did and said not only happened, but was effective. It's valid. If Jesus had just died on the cross, where would our sense of hope be? We cannot think that we would be different than the disciples who are locked away in a room nervous or on the way to a new city confused. We would be confused. All these promises that this man who was mighty in word and deed, 
inside of God and the people, all these things. We had hoped he was the one who was going to come redeem, but he was handed over and killed. If that's where the story had ended, there would be no validation to the hope. Our hope in Jesus is anchored in the resurrection, but our work for salvation is occurred on the cross. You know what I like to think? I like to think if you journey through the word from Genesis all the way to the resurrection, you kind of walk, and at last you get to the empty tomb, and it's empty. And then what we should do is in the knowledge that he's risen is turn right around and begin to walk back into the word, all the way back to Genesis. That's the path of a good Christian, a healthy Christian journey, is start there and go, and then you get... you. you you end up with this dead-end room with this stone rolled away, and you stop there, and you say, now knowing this, I have to go back. And as we go back, we begin to see with great and profound eyes what God has been doing all the time. In fact, we begin to see more and more that's at work in the statements of Christ on our behalf. So that when Jesus says in the Gospel of John, as he's right before he's about to raise Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. We know that has been validated by Jesus. When he feeds the 5,000, we don't simply see someone who's giving a meal. We see someone who is in the occupation of giving life. In fact, he follows the meal up with, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will never die. Do you believe this? And because of the resurrection, we say that is validated. When we get to the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the righteous, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. We say that's validated because the pure and righteous one is currently seated with God. All through, we get, we get to the prophets and we see Daniel speaking about how one day he saw a vision of one like the Son of Man coming to judge the nations. We go, that's been validated by the resurrection. All through, we get to Isaiah who speaks of, of the death of Christ, but then says he will see the light of day again. And we say that's validated. We see it over and over and over again. We see the resurrection validated in the way they cross the Red Sea, how they go from slavery to new life. All through it, on our way back to Genesis, we see it time and time again, all the way until we get to Genesis 3, and it says, and the man will crush the head of the serpent, though the serpent will bruise his heel. And we say, that has been validated. Christ has put death to death. On this high day, the throne of Sundays, we celebrate the resurrection because it is our hope that all that Jesus has done for us is valid. There are many religions in this world, but they're religions of dead men. Muhammad never did anything for me, and he's dead. Buddha did not do a thing for me and is dead. Jesus died for me and lives. And that is worth celebrating. Happy Easter. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that we would see your work and your love and your life in all of the columns of Scripture, Lord. I I pray that you would strengthen our faith by sending us back into the word, 
into your story and understand you have been weaving this tale for a long time. You have been, you have been thoughtfully and carefully telling this story among mankind for ages so that when at last we see, we might fully know, Lord. And I pray that you would grow us from infants to mature believers who have a, a rugged hope in Christ given his resurrection, Lord. I pray that through this hope might come courage and perseverance. Father, I think of the hardships that are going to be common to us all, Lord, and I pray that through the work of your Son for us on the cross and the truth of your resurrection, we might have a sturdy hope that is built on that faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.